Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hi, this is Will. Uh, there's a graph that's been around on the internet for a couple of years that shows the climate impact of a variety of foods. And I've always been fascinated at the bottom of that chart. There is a category for tree nuts that is negative on a, its carbon footprint, I guess, because they are planting trees to replace other crops or something like that, and it's just, it's always fascinated me, and I, I just wonder a little bit about that. Is that is that really true, and how is that today, and how does all that work? Thanks. That's a great question, Will. Trees as crops is a really interesting topic. We also got questions about agroforestry and of trees on farms and pastures. People are interested in trees, and, you know, we love trees. We love trees. We are 100% pro-tree. Trees are great. They do good things for us, and they do good things for our planet. I mean, houses come from trees. Books come from trees. Amazon boxes come from trees, right? All good things. Fruits come from trees. Nuts come from trees. And yeah, toilet paper comes from trees. And most importantly for our purposes, since we're a food and climate show, trees store a lot of carbon. I mean, in a way, every show we do about food and climate is about trees. I mean, not just because food grows on trees, although, yeah, we, we love fruit and nut trees, but because the vast majority of the habitable land on this planet is either agriculture or forests. So when cropland and grazing land expands, forests shrink. Right When we keep saying we need to make more food with less land, what we're saying is we want to stop deforestation because that's transferring carbon from trees to the atmosphere. And that could be the single most important issue that we talk about on this show because forests and, you know, the Amazon makes the news, but there are other forests too. They're not just great for the climate. They're great for wildlife. They're great for biodiversity. They're great for the air. In fact, the Amazon is known as the lungs of the earth. Forests, trees can stabilize soil. They can prevent floods. They can do all kinds of things. I live on two acres of trees, and Mike keeps telling you about his solar panels, and it kind of breaks my heart because I have too many trees to put up solar panels. I have to pick. And for the time being, I'm picking my trees because I really like trees. Yeah. I mean, you can't put a treehouse on a solar panel, right? <laughs> but seriously, it's it's not a coincidence that so much literature, right, and especially fairy tales and other children's literature, it always happens in forests, right? Sherwood Forest, yeah. the Hundred Acre Woods, right, the Forbidden Forest in Harry Potter, the Jungle Book. There's the Lorax, right? He speaks for the trees. I mean, I think what we're saying is forests are wild and enchanted and magical. And they're really the opposite of parking lots and strip malls and modernity. And and so they appeal to like all sides of the food debate. They appeal to the people who are, you know, looking for sort of a nostalgic view of agriculture the way it used to be practiced, but also to, you know, the technocrats who are looking to a, a technologically driven better agriculture. Trees are one of the few things that everybody seems to agree on. It's, it's funny, the one climate policy that has truly universal support right, from Republicans and Democrats, the business community and the environmental community, is the Global Trillion Trees Initiative, 
right? Because who can be against planting trees? Nobody's against planting trees. <laughs> well, although I should say there was this funny passage in Jared Kushner's memoir. Where wait, he wait, says you, that, you read Jared Kushner's well, memoir? Well, I heard about it. I heard about it. And I, I he, he apparently, he says he tried to get President Trump to support the initiative. And Trump said, what is this trillion trees bullshit? Are you trying to push more liberal on me? But even Trump got on board, although it's funny, he kept he kept calling it the Billion Trees Initiative. Hey, look, I'll start with the Billion Trees. I'll take what I can get. You know, of course, Trump also said that California could fix its wildfire problem by raking the forest. So we're not going to look to him for tree advice. I'm pretty sure it's more complicated than that. Well, yeah, I think part of our point, right, is that all of this is a little more complicated, right? Fixing the world's deforestation problems and its food and climate and ag problems, it's going to be a lot more complicated than just planting a trillion trees, right? It, it matters whether those trees catch fire or whether you cut them down or whether you just end up cutting down trees somewhere else. And, and we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. There you we go. No, it's more complicated than that. And trees are great. Trees inspire agreement among disparate groups. There's a lot of kumbaya going on with trees, and you guys know how I feel about kumbaya. But we are, in this episode, going to talk about agroforestry and using forests as carbon offsets. What's the deal with burning trees for energy? Um, and, and is there any kind of policy that's out there that we can do trees better? Look, we're not the Lorax, but we can at least speak about trees. I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel. And while the Lorax is fiction, Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet, is facts. Today, tree facts. So it's true. Everybody loves trees. <laughs> Tomorrow, I don't know if you've heard the. Uh, there's that great Saturday Night Live skit where they do the. Uh, they do this kind of fake rap about trees. Go trees! And kind of the the joke is that even these sort of doofus idiots kind of know that trees are good. I planted all of these trees. That's a whole lot of oxygen breathe. Right? We'd be loving these trees, even if we're not exactly sure why. And in fact, at the end, when when uh, when somebody tells them, like, hey, you know, climate change is a little more complicated than just planting trees, they actually say, but we can all agree that trees are good, right? And I guess we can. Why? Why are they so good? If it makes Saturday Night Live, we know that it's a, it's a cultural touchstone. So there are a couple of great reasons that trees are good. One of them is size, and one of them is longevity. And trees are amazingly big. And if you've ever cut one down or cut one up and hauled wood, you know just how big they are. I mean, they can fall and kill somebody. They can ruin your house. Trees are big. And because trees are big and about half of the dry matter in trees is carbon, it means they're sequesting a lot 
of carbon. And it's like a sure thing. You plant a tree, and as long as the tree stays alive, it sequesters carbon. And an average-sized tree will sequester about 50 pounds of carbon per year. And so, you know, that's sort of a good, you know, working number so we can compare it to some other things that either uh, sequester carbon or save emissions. Yeah, I mean, this is really important because, I mean, forests around the world, they already soak up like a quarter of the carbon dioxide we emit, um, right? It's called the terrestrial carbon sink. Um, But essentially, that means that if it wasn't for our forests, uh, we'd have even more of a global warming problem. And it's particularly important since, you know, the scientists are telling us that, you know, you don't want to be Debbie Downer all the time, but... Like, we've already increased global temperatures by 1.2 degrees Celsius. The Paris goal is to keep it to Mm -hmm. 1.5. But look, it's even if we completely get our act together and really switch to a clean energy economy tomorrow, we're not going to make 1.5. We're going to blow past it. And that means it's incredibly important not only that we reduce emissions, but that we figure out a way to have negative emissions to sort of soak up the carbon that we've already emitted. And right now, trees are the best technology we've got. Photosynthesis is a miracle, right? It's like it takes sunlight and water and carbon dioxide and turns it into tree growth. Talk about a mature technology. (laughs) Exactly. You know, my solar panels, I just checked today and, uh, you know, on my my solar edge sort of dashboard, it tells me that over the five years I've had them, uh, it's been the equivalent of planting 2,255 trees. But honestly, it's not exactly the equivalent, right? Because that's just energy that I've avoided. If right. I was actually planting those trees, they would be soaking up the carbon. They would be making the problem less of a problem instead of just you know preventing the world from getting worse. But because it's a bathtub, both of those things matter. Keeping carbon out and reabsorbing carbon that's already out. We still got a billion cars on the planet, and so those are filling the tub with carbon. But trees can be, they can sort of lift the drain, right? So that we can sort of drain the tub a little bit. So, so Mike, how many times a day do you check your solar panel dashboard? (laughs) I, I'm much better than I used to be. I, I have to admit, I more check the money than the trees, but you know, okay. it, I've saved a lot of money with those panels. So that's one comparison. Mike's solar panels are the equivalent of over 2,000 trees over five years. But let's talk about hamburgers because we're constantly harping on beef as the biggest contributor in our diets to climate change. So how do trees compare to hamburgers? And a quick back-of-the-envelope conversation, because you guys know we love math. A tree year, that 50 pounds, is worth about 18 hamburgers. So I'm not suggesting you go out and plant the trees to make up for your hamburgers. I mean, there's... Why not? All right. Plant the trees and be careful about the number of hamburgers. But just so you have some sense of the the magnitude of what we can do with trees and the harm we do with hamburgers. Right. And if we're going to talk about magnitude, I mean, the basic problem uh, is that we like hamburgers better than we like trees. Um, the, uh, the world has lost more than a third of its forest. 
um, just about all of it since the invention of agriculture 10 to 12,000 years ago. If you look at the world's habitable land, about half of it is agriculture, and only about 37% of it now is forest. Though if you include the savannas and shrubs, it comes out to about 50-50. And that's the kind of the big fight. You know, is the world going to be more of a farm or is it going to be more of a forest? And the more it becomes a farm the less carbon our forests are storing. It's partly a problem. It's a forestry problem, right? You know, as the population has gotten bigger and wealthier, you know, we're building more homes out of wood and more furniture and definitely more Amazon boxes and the the fluff that goes into diapers, all kinds of forest products. Um, we are also wasting a lot more trees by burning them for energy, for fuel and electricity. U.S. paper consumption, it has dropped a little bit since the, uh, the dawn of the internet, um, but I guess we're still printing stuff out. And of course, we're still... We still got to wipe, right? I don't know. I've I've used that uh that who gives a crap the recycled. Paper I don't know what toilet. that is. Yeah, it's it's recycled toilet paper. They don't recycle the actual toilet paper, but <laughs> okay, it's recycled that's paper comforting. that is that is toilet paper, and it's it's fine. But so yeah, so all those things do put pressure on forests. But the main thing that puts pressure on forests is our appetite, right? It's just farming. This is so important. And whenever I have conversations with people about the impact of climate, um, this is sort of the thing that I think people are reluctant to to acknowledge, or it just doesn't make intuitive sense. So that thing you just said, that of our habitable land, 50% is agriculture, and nearly all of the, of the remaining 50% is something we don't want to turn into agriculture. It's either forests, or it's grasslands, or, you know, shrublands, and things like that. Only like 1% of the habitable Earth's surface is actually inhabited by we the people. And so if you take that 50% that's agriculture and you have to make it 51% or 52%, that means that forests or grasslands have to go. And that is the absolute worst thing we can do for the climate is releasing the carbon that's been stored in those grasslands, sometimes for centuries, sometimes for millennia. And that's what we're absolutely positively trying to avoid. No, that's right. And uh, I mean, you're now you, you're seeing these stories. I mean, the Amazon, which is this incredible carbon sink, is on the verge of turning into a carbon source. Obviously, in California, we've seen these horrible wildfires um, where they're actually putting more carbon into the atmosphere than a million solar roofs in California are saving. And it really does create this doom loop, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, you have more wildfires. And also because of climate change, you have these pest infestations where they're, you know, moving to areas that used to be too cold for them and they're killing trees that way. So that's putting a lot more terrestrial carbon into the air, which makes climate change worse, which makes wildfires worse. And it really is, it's kind of depressing. Okay, in case doom and gloom Grunwald <laughs> is getting you down, I actually have a piece of good news, which is that at the same time deforestation is happening, reforestation 
is also happening. Now, the thing about it is that it's happening in different places. Um, And so the Amazon is still a huge problem. But since 1986, and they do this research by using uh, satellite images, and they look at tree cover, global tree cover. And since 1986, we have actually added a Greenland's worth of tree cover globally. So it's not all trees coming down. That is true, but the deforestation situation is still pretty bad. It's partly because we're still losing, as you mentioned, tens of millions of acres of tropical forests every year. And these tropical forests are so important for carbon storage and, and a million other things. You know, look, sometimes it's just natural, right? Look at the United States, where the middle of the country, a lot of it used to be forests. And then, you know, in, in the Northeast, we had these Settlers came from from Europe and they deforested a lot of the Northeast to make, you know, to make their farms. Um, And then they moved west and covered wagons and they deforested the middle of the country. And now actually the Northeast is reforesting. Um, You're actually seeing, you know, your part of the world, you're seeing uh, an actual expansion of the carbon sink. And if you actually walk through places like, um, you know, the White Mountains in New Hampshire, there are lots of areas where it just feels like it's been a forest forever, but then you'll see a stone wall that goes through it. And it was obviously at some point a field. And it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that people actually cleared this land, they grazed the land, they, they farmed the land, but then they discovered the Midwest. West, which was a lot better for doing all that stuff. Exactly. But then look, also, we should say that one of the reasons that you're seeing this expansion of tree cover around the world is not because of this magical rebirth of old growth forests, um, but because people are planting trees. They're planting tree farms um, for wood or for Amazon boxes. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but you look at, for instance, the southeastern United States, which used to be sort of natural longleaf pine mostly. And now it's it's loblolly pine plantations, which, you know, is actually from a carbon perspective, you know, it's not, you're not necessarily losing a lot, but certainly from a biodiversity perspective, you know, these aren't the kind of enchanted forests. These are, you know, they're pretty sterile. They clear out the underbrush. They're essentially farms that have just very large and wide crops. And it's worth pointing out that forests are are organisms. They're more than just the sum of their trees. That expression, don't miss the forest for the trees. Um, there's all kinds of biodiversity of weird signaling involving fungi and, and insects. And a forest is a complex organism. And if you cut down the forest, and then you have a poplar plantation or a loblolly pine plantation, it's not the same. So let's bring this full circle back to food because trees are important. And when we talk about climate and diet, we have two goals. Number one is to keep the trees we already have. And number two is find good ways to use new trees. To talk about just exactly how great trees are in farming, 
I want to go back to Will's original question, which is that, and he apparently looks at the same charts that we look at because on our favorite source, Our World in Data, and if you don't know it, you should look it up because they have the best charts. Um, that We're it awesome looks, at parties, by the way. <laughs> I know. Um, and it, it shows the climate footprint of all different crops. And at the very bottom of the chart, it has tree nuts, and they actually have a negative climate impact, or is it positive? It's like, it's the good impact. You know what I'm talking about. So it's actually on the other side of the axis. And the reason that's the case is that if you plant an orchard of trees, you're not just producing food, you're also sequestering the carbon in those trees. So it is kind of magical. So this is the next installment in my continuing effort to make you care about my favorite agricultural metric, which is calories per acre. So let's go back to this idea that 50% of our habitable land is agriculture, and we have a growing population to feed. So obviously, getting the most calories from those acres is key. And obviously, there are other measures too. There's nutrition and there's protein. But calories is the thing that they all have in common. And most whole foods are pretty nutritious anyway. So calories per acre is the metric you should care about. And trees kill it. They're awesome for it. So if we look at, just to set the stage, okay, for starters, almost nothing is going to come in the way corn does. So corn comes in at like 15 million calories per acre, and potatoes are up there too. But if you look at the other crops that we grow, soy, which is the most efficient uh, legume, is six, well, the second most efficient legume, because Mike's going to tell you all about the most efficient legume. Um, uh, it's about 6 million, but then it goes down from there. And so, you know, wheat is 4 million. Most dry beans and legumes are in the 2 million to 3 million category. And vegetables are 2 million, a million and a half. And that's before you account for the waste from a perishable product. So let's talk about trees. And and cows are like single digits. You know. <laughs> cows are like single digits. So <laughs> fruit trees Apples are like 5 million. Oranges are 5 million. Avocados are great. They're 6 million, but now they're they're doing some more uh, uh, avocado planting in California with more densely planted acreage, and they're seeing increases from that 6 million. Bananas, and, you know, we don't grow them here, but they're places where not only do they grow them, but it's actually a staple food, and that's 6 million calories. Oh, sorry, that's 8 million calories per acre. And, you know, one of my favorites, jackfruit, again, something that probably a lot of people haven't even tried, um, but it is, it's a starchy fruit, um, and, uh, and like bananas, it's used as a staple someplace, some places, and that's 12 million calories per acre. And nuts are just as good. Almonds are 6 million, walnuts are 7 million, other kinds of tree nuts are in that same category. Trees grow a lot of food. And it makes sense, right? Because <laughs> because they're using the air above them. They're like food skyscrapers. Uh, I and I do use this analogy a lot. Where when we're thinking about 
you know, how agriculture is sort of taking over the world. It's very much like agricultural sprawl in the same way we have, you know, exurban sprawl, where instead of people living really close together and, you know, leaving the outskirts for the bugs and bunnies, you have people sprawling out and sort of subdivisions replacing nature. Um, We're seeing that on an even larger scale with agricultural sprawl. We're just bulldozing forests and grasslands and savannas to just create farms everywhere and pastures everywhere instead of, you know, really high density, high calories per acre plantings um, that will provide a lot of food without using all that land. You guys have Um, totally sold Mike on calories per acre. (laughs) But even if you're not growing food on the trees, Trees have a role in uh, in agriculture, and there are a number of ways that 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 they can participate in other kinds of agriculture. And that's what you hear a lot about the phrase agroforestry, right? Um, as well as silvopasture, which is essentially you know planting trees in pastures. Agroforestry is usually incorporating some kind of trees or shrubs in the actual croplands. Um, and look, there is some evidence that it can have a really nice effect. You've heard Tamar and I, you know, we've been sort of questioning this whole regenerative movement, not as not the, as a movement, not as an agricultural practice, but this idea that it's going to store lots of carbon in soil because it's so hard to know. Like, how do you measure it? How do you measure it from year to year? Um, are you just adding manure? What was there before it? What would be there without the agro? It's just very difficult to, to know exactly what you're doing. Trees, if you plant a tree and a pasture, you can see that carbon right there. Um, You have definitely stored more carbon. And it's the same thing if you're actually planting trees in cropland. Now, obviously, if you're planting it all over the cropland, um, you know, you might start to, you might not not have any crops. I mean, you could start to lose it. But to the extent that you can, particularly silver pasture, where you're planting these you're planting these trees in pastures, particularly in Colombia and other parts of Latin America, they've just seen incredible results. Some of these trees are leguminous and actually help fertilize the pasture by putting nitrogen into the soil. They also provide shade for the animals, which is really nice. Um, but most importantly, you're just seeing right there. You're instead of just having a grazing land, which you know certainly has some carbon storage, um, but you have a grazing land that's a little bit like a forest, and that can store a lot of carbon. And trees can have other kinds of beneficial effects also. And, you know, for a while in the 80s, um, there was a, a program with the USDA, and there were incentives to plant trees as windbreaks um, on these big farms that have thousands of acres, usually of corn and soy. And if you periodically have a windbreak, it can help prevent erosion and runoff. And farmers did plant some of those windbreaks. Unfortunately, when when the uh, the incentives went away, so did the windbreaks. But then there's also the issue of uh, protecting the waterways in farmland and leaving barriers between the crops and the water. And planting those with trees helps, you know, filter out the nutrients from the fertilizer and prevent it from getting into the water. And, you know, one of the most interesting ideas I've come across in my writing about food and agriculture was the, a possibility of making 
making trees more of a feature of our sort of homogenous farming landscape that's just acres and acres and acres of row crops. And it solves a couple of problems. I mean, farmers don't really want the trees because they're a pain in the ass. Let's face it. You have to maneuver your equipment around them, and the shade from them can suppress yields where there's when, when the crops are in the shade of the trees. Um, and to actually use those trees as a food crop is a skill set that hasn't been in their farm and, and that they likely don't have. But what if farmers could lease those strips of land, the strips of land along waterways and the strips of land that they use as windbreaks, lease those with people who were trying, young farmers, trying to get into farming, maybe who are interested in developing tree crop expertise. And you can plant tree crops in windbreaks interspersed with our, uh, with our you know, uh, amber waves of grain. Um, and it seems like it would be a big win, but of course, this is another probably unrealistic part of my kumbaya vision of American agriculture. I think actually that is a cool idea, but I also I think we have to be realistic, right? About when we're talking about you know that half of the half of the world's land is agriculture. Um, these kind of ideas are really nibbling around the edges, right? I mean, and when people talk about Africa, right? Some people say like, oh, well, we should help people in Africa grow more food by improving their yields. They need fertilizer. They need better chemicals. They need tractors. Um, and then other people say, no, they need agroforestry. But I worry a lot that this whole idea of agroforestry is one of those things can come to mean anything. But this is this is true of so many of the things we talk about and so many complex issues, and it's exactly why we are such a hit at parties, <laughs> that, that it's all in the details, it's all in the nuance. And people love to latch on to a concept that has a lot of good about it, and then they get the, the idea that it's the white hat and it's good in all instances. And of course, that's true of nothing. Right. I just wrote my column for Canary uh, last week about this whole concept of climate smart agriculture. And I mentioned that the Biden administration was about to give away a billion dollars for climate smart commodities. Um, and that at that point, we didn't really know what that meant. And so they now they've given away, and in fact, they decided to give away $3 billion because they love it so much instead of $1 billion. Um, and Again, we'll see what it means. A lot of it does look like these sort of regenerative projects. And some of them have agroforestry in the name. But like I was looking at one of these, they got like $60 million. Um, The Nature Conservancy is involved. It looks like a very nice program to to try to incorporate some trees into into farmland and pasture land. But they were saying they're going to store 12 tons of carbon per acre. And that's like way more than a forest. You know, so I just think some of the, you know, the rhetoric and the irrational exuberance kind of gets out of control where somehow we're going to, you know, we're going to have our crops and we're going to plant trees around it and somehow it's going to be even better for the climate than just having and like the Amazon. It just seems very unlikely to me. And so I, I want everybody to kind of temper their expectations about this stuff. And we have to be super clear when we talk about trees in order for them to actually be a help to the climate, they have to do three things. 
they have to live. And there are all kinds of stories of, you know, carbon offsets of these trees that got planted. And then, you know, five years later, 80% were dead. So the trees have to live. They have to not burn down because then you lose all your hard-earned carbon. And they have to be additional. They can't be substituting for some other trees somewhere else. So yes, temper your enthusiasm. um, And it has to meet those criteria. But I still have some enthusiasm left. Yeah, but that's but that's really important, particularly the uh, additionality piece, right? Because um, so many of these tree solutions, it's like, oh, well, let's just build a fence around those trees over there. Um, but that doesn't really help if then you're going to just cut down some trees over here. Um, and and that's, you know, so many of these offsets have had so many problems where it's like, oh, great, we're, uh, we're protecting mangroves. Um, just these mangroves, you know, not those mangroves. Don't look over there. <laughs> exactly. And so I do think that these, you know, these are these are hard problems. Um, but uh, you know, if we're gonna take if we're gonna take tree planting and tree saving seriously, um, you know, we're gonna it's it's not just gonna be like snapping our fingers. Hey Mike, you got a favorite tree? Oh, you know my favorite tree. I do. I want to hear about your favorite tree. Oh, you want me? I have a favorite tree, too. So we can see, like, whose favorite tree is more persuasive. <laughs> so my favorite tree is the American chestnut. So the American chestnut, which uh, populated forests up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States up until the 1920s. And estimates were that there were, you know, three or four billion American chestnut trees. And then came the chestnut blight, which probably arrived in uh, Chinese chestnuts, which have resistance to the blight, but American chestnuts had no resistance to the blight. And in a matter of 10, 15 years, it wiped out all of our American chestnuts. And now there's still some American chestnuts out there because the roots survive and they periodically will send up a, a sapling, and but eventually the blight gets that too. So for all practical purposes, American chestnuts are wiped out. Now, there has been a very interesting effort um, to create an American chestnut that's resistant to the blight. Actually, there's two efforts. And the first effort it was like the old-fashioned way, is that you cross the American chestnut and the Chinese chestnut, and you hope that you get the resistance from the Chinese chestnut, but every other aspect of the American chestnut, because the American chestnut is different from other chestnut trees. It's a forest tree. It grows very tall. It also grows very straight, and it has rot-resistant timber. And so when these efforts to to get the resistance in the American chestnut, it's hard to do with back crossing because there's a bunch of different genes involved. And when you want just those genes and all of the other genes from the American chestnut, it's a tall order for plant breeders. So enter these guys at Syracuse University. And they are, they have a completely different approach. And it's genetic modification, and it is one of the best genetic modification projects I have ever seen. It is in the public interest. It is in the public domain. And these guys are doing it just to try and make the world better. So the way that 
blight kills a chestnut tree is with a byproduct of the 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 fung the fungus eating the wood which is oxalic acid and the tree can't do anything with the oxalic acid and eventually the oxalic acid kills the tree but other plants have a way of dealing with oxalic acid that they can they can there's a chemical reaction so the oxalic acid is broken into components that do not harm the the, the plant and it turns out that wheat has that ability and there is one gene that is responsible for it. And so these guys in Syracuse took this one gene from wheat and they put it in the American chestnut and it the results are astonishing that they have like uh, test plots of American chestnuts that have been exposed to the blight and are doing just fine. And I am I'm wildly enthusiastic about this because I want to have a food tree, and it's, talk about calories per acre, this is calories per tree. One chestnut tree can produce 100,000 calories worth of high-quality nut meats. So they're not just roasting on an open fire. These are like... So the, the, the chestnuts were like a staple food for people. They would go out in the forest and collect it. And again, my back-of-the-envelope calculation, those three to four billion chestnut trees, if we still had them, would grow enough food to meet 100% of the caloric needs of every American today. And I'm not advocating the all-chestnut diet. I just want to point out that this is a lot of food, and we have the ability to put it back out there in the world. Somebody's got to figure out how to make chestnut burgers. (laughs) First, they have to get the permitting so they can put these trees out in the wild. All right, so that's my favorite tree, and I know what your favorite tree is, so why don't you talk about that? I'm a complete bore about the miracle tree known as the Pongamia. It is essentially vertical soy. We talked about how great soy was. Was it last week? Well... Pongamia is like soy, except it's a tree, so it stores a ton of carbon. Um, it is pretty much can be grown regeneratively um, without Don't fertilizer. use that word. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, uh, it's leguminous, so it puts a lot of nitrogen into the soil. It, uh, it doesn't require irrigation. It doesn't require chemicals. It doesn't require fertilizer. It can grow just about anywhere, including like in deserts, even in sort of in salty soils. Um, it can grow in really crappy areas, basically, where you don't think anything can grow. And it has right now probably, you know, a few times the yields of soy, but ultimately it should have four to 10 times the yields of soy. So it is like soy city. I call it the miracle crop, partly because, you know, this stuff has been growing wild in India and Australia, and even there's some in a park near me in Miami um, for, you know, thousands of years. It's in the Ayurvedic texts. Um, You know, everybody knew it's got got these healing properties, um, but it was, it's incredibly bitter. So nobody had ever really used it for food or for, you know, sort of for 
cattle feed. Um, it was very niche thing. And so it's, you know, it's like considered almost a trash tree in, uh, in India. They were using it for actually for reforestation projects uh, just because it grows so fast and stores carbon. Um, well, this company, Terviva, they figured out this incredibly easy way to debitter it, essentially, using alcohol. And then, of course, the challenge is, how do you get farmers to plant a new crop, right? I mean, especially one that doesn't have a harvest for the first four years because it's a tree. Um, farmers don't generally like to do that. Well, miracle number two, again, in my neck of the woods, the Florida citrus industry was wiped out by a virus, by citrus greening. And so all these farmers were screwed. And suddenly they were willing to plant pangamia on their crappiest farmland. And it's worked great. Um, it turns out that they can harvest it with the stuff they use for almonds, so they didn't have to reinvent that wheel. Um, then they just by chance found out they started messing around with, oh, what kind of oil can we get out of it? It turns out it's basically olive oil, but with this beautiful golden color. So Terviva is about to start selling it next year. It's going to be called Panova oil. All kinds of just one good stroke of luck after another. Um, they've raised $100 million. Everything is going great. The one problem is now that they've, you know, after 15 years of working on this, they've, and everything that can go right has gone right, they've got 1,500 acres of pangamia in the ground, which is not really going to compete with the 300 million acres. Why isn't this catching on? First of all, I guess, is the Treviva um, uh, process proprietary? So no, they they uh, they work with farmers. So uh, so they give farmers the you know they have a nursery. They give farmers the plants and the you know and then it just grows. But if you if you go and raid your local pangamia tree and you want to do this thing, are, is this it's something anybody can do? So they've they've put genetic markers on every tree, so they can trace it, which is great in many ways, right? For uh, for the traceability, now everybody wants to know where their food comes from. So there is one one. One piece of good news is that there are like a millions of tons, a million tons of pangamia seeds just sitting around in India, um, just growing wild. And so Terviva, while they're trying to get this growing as a crop, which is very slow because, again, farmers are reluctant to take that kind of risk, um, they've started mobilizing, you know, basically the rural peasantry in, in India to start collecting these seeds and having them processed in India. And they can pay, you know, everybody in India now has a has digital currency, um, which is set up by the government. So Terviva can pay pay these people more than they've ever been paid. A lot of them are women who uh, this is sort of pro providing some empowerment for them uh, in, their, in their rural communities where they've never had access to their own source of funding. Um, so that is, it's enough that they're already going to start having products. But again, it's just very difficult to sort of change the agricultural world. If anything can do it, I think I think Pangamia can. If you know anybody who's got like a million acres of land sitting around somewhere in the tropics that they can't decide what to do with, um, they should plant Pangamia. They maybe will make a lot of money, but they'll definitely uh, provide a lot of food and not a lot of land. Um, but anyway, that's you know that's that's my miracle tree, my super tree. If we could carpet the planet uh, with Pangamia and American chestnuts. We would solve all of our problems. <laughs>
Well, a few of them. <laughs> okay, so then the question becomes, trees are great. We've lost a lot of them. We're not replacing them as quickly as we're losing them. So are there any policy angles here where, you know, trees can be encouraged and saving of the trees that we have and planting trees new that are additive um, can happen? Well, I think you saw there was uh, there was $1.5 billion for tree planting. And that the, uh, was one inflation. of my favorites when we did the Inflation right. Reduction and Act. The Inflation Reduction Act. And then, by the way, that's uh, not just, you know, not just doubt in the sticks, right? It's also for urban tree planting, um, which has, you know, it's good for air quality. It's good for shade. Um, and again, as the planet gets hotter, we're going to need trees more and more. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. There's also, uh, there's just as much money for tree burning, right. To, you know, sort of wildfire management, um, Mm -hmm. which is going to be very important as a, you know, to preserve the trees we have. I do think, you know, tree policy, forest policy is really hard. And this is something they've really struggled with at the international level where there's the red project, right? And then there's red plus. And there are all these UN ideas where, okay, we're going to basically try to pay people to plant trees, keep trees, not burn down their trees. They're essentially offset programs. And, uh, you know, They've been a disaster. There are all kinds of scandals, but I don't really have a better idea. And yeah, we need what we need is an international deforestation sort of treaty. And, you know, there have been efforts to do things in particular countries. But then we get into the problem that you talked about up top, which is that here we are, we already deforested, and now we're telling other people not to. And there's there's a very unsavory aspect of that policy. It's really difficult. I mean, who do you pay to protect the forest, right? Um, And do you just build a fence over here? You know, do you protect this forest? Then what happens to that forest? And do you pay the farmer? Do you pay the municipality? Do you pay the country? Um, These are really hard problems. They're very hard problems. And, you know, meantime, I think I do have some hope here at home that the new Climate Smart Ag initiatives in the Inflation Reduction Act and in other USDA uh, initiatives are going to encourage tree planting because, as you said, it is one of the most obvious and durable ways to store carbon. There is a lot of money in the Inflation Reduction Act for measuring and monitoring, um, and I have no idea how they're going to do it for soil carbon, but I but know, how, know they how they can to do, do it, it for trees. trees. <laughs> it's like, hey, that's a tree. <laughs> we can estimate its weight. We know 50% of the dry matter is carbon. Voila, we can go to town. So I would be remiss if we left without my pointing out that anybody can plant a tree. And is it going to solve our our climate problem? No, of course it's not. But there's nothing that's going to single-handedly solve our climate problem. And our motto here is, 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 yes, and we need to do all of these things. One thing that's really interesting about the science is that pretty much consistently, we found every year that trees are even better than we thought. They store more carbon than they than we thought. They store it for longer than we thought. They keep sucking it out of the air um, better than we thought. We talk so much about fertilizer and soil carbon and 
methane and burping cows. You know, there are so many ways that we can sort of tinker around the edges of this stuff. But trees, we know, are good. More would be better. And it's it's just, it's a nice, concrete, feel-good, constructive thing that you can do. So do your part. Plant one. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to know what you're thinking. We talked about trees because people asked us about trees. So ask us about some new things that we can base some new episodes on. We're at 508-377-3449, or send us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Managing producer is Cecily Mesa-Martinez. Dalvin Abawaje is the associate producer. And engineering is done by Sean Marquin and Greg Vilfranc. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. So, if you want more of this unprecedented tree content, or any other kind of content, please spread the word. Give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if you know someone else who you think wants to hear about trees and farms and forests and the other stuff we talk about, please send them a link. And we will be back next week with another wonky fact fest.